It's every man's worst nightmare getting accused of something like that. Can you guess what every woman's worst nightmare is? Beautiful. Okay, perfect line reading, Trevor. I loved it. Michaela, could you try to be a little less shrill? Welcome, one and all, big and small, to Ghost Party Radio, an in-depth and very serious exploration into the world of genre film, hosted by two small-time cowards. I'm Adam. And I'm Trevor. And yeah, baby, yeah, is the catchphrase (laughs) you wanted us to use at the top of the show. Uh, Email us at ghostpartypictures at gmail.com with any other catchphrase suggestions you may have. I'm sure they're better than this one. Hey Trevor, how are you doing? Good, Adam. That was that was really good. That was very very original. Um, yeah, yeah, baby, yeah. Are you excited to talk about the movie this week? I am. I'm very excited to, to talk about it with a very special guest. If I can introduce her now, she's an artist. She's a movie lover, and she saw this movie at the drive-in. Wow. Michaela yes. Mickey Davis, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for coming. Well, you know, this is a genre podcast. Um, We're curious here. What is your favorite genre of cinema? I would have to say surreal, if that could be considered a genre. Like surreal thriller. Okay. Do you have uh, some examples? Um... I have an example from like last year. I really liked, I'm thinking of ending things. Mm-hmm. Um, that sort of movie where you're just thinking like, what on earth is going on um, the whole entire time. And I like a little bit of mystery to it too, so. Hmm. Okay, yeah. so what do, you think, what do you think makes a good surreal film? Um, the sense that everything in that world that it's built up um, is normal that everything is happening as usual but then to us in our reality we're just like that's off something's weird here Mm -hmm. but the movie doesn't try to make it too um too gaudy like they they don't try to go over the top with it Mm -hmm. i think that's what makes it good so you like those subtlety uh, uncomfortable situations yeah well you must have loved this movie then (laughs) yeah Michaela, I hope that surreal surrealist is a genre because, as you know, as a, of a big fan of this podcast, we do deconstruct genres, and we have this wheel with a hundred genres on it, and one of those genres is surrealist. So I yes. really hope that is a genre. Yeah, <laughs> I, I consider it to be a genre. Yeah. Um, so, but our genre that we're going through right now is revenge. Um, what is your history with revenge, in general and on film, Michaela? Um, in general, ooh, that's a loaded question. Mm-hmm. Um, in general, I would have to say, um, despite some, you know, things happening in life, I've never been one to seek out, like, revenge in a cinematic way. Like, I've never gone out and, like, murdered anybody. Um, <laughs> Adam, I, you, I you think... told me that we had a revenge expert here. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but as far as movies, um, I definitely gravitate towards a lot. Like, I remember watching um, the Vengeance trilogy and really loving those. So, like, Sympathy for Lady Vengeance. Um, that was a great revenge movie, in my opinion. We've yet to do an episode where Park Chan-wook's movies have not come up during this. So, uh, <laughs> I guess a little early to say, but he's probably the king of revenge movies. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I I... I back up that claim, yeah. Do you have any favorite revenge movies? Favorite revenge movies? I mean, Kill Bill is also mm-hmm. a classic. And um, I think it's interesting, too, considering the topic of this podcast, that the top ones that I can think of show women getting revenge. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just put that together right now as I said that. I was like, yeah, some of my favorites are with women getting revenge. What do you think that says about the state of the world? Um, I think that says that we have had enough um, as women. Um, I think that 
especially after the past four years, if I'm going to get, like, a little political, it's like, yeah, we we don't really want uh, to hear anybody telling us, like, putting us in our place. Um, so I think as far as, like, the state of the world, like, women have had enough. <laughs> okay, wait, really quick, I think we should get into it maybe now, maybe in the future. Where do we stand on Tarantino versus Park Chan-wook revenge storytellers? Ooh. Well, I when I said Park Chan-wook was the king of revenge, I did Tarantino did pop into my head as like the but queen. recently the dude has been doing a lot of revenge movies. Mm-hmm. Um yeah. but I mean Park I mean I know we'll get into this on the Handmaiden episode, but his movies just like bleed revenge like Tarantino like his movies, especially the Kill Bill stuff, is like Kill Bill is a Western movie. It's a samurai movie. It's blah, 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 blah. And it's also a revenge movie, whereas Park Chan Whoop will just straight up make like three or four dramas that are purely about revenge. So mm-hmm. I have to give it to him purely just like if he if he had like, you know, revenge blood going through his veins or something. That's what he has. Tarantino has just a bunch of he has spaghetti Western going through his blood and other genres. I think Park Chan Wook just totally is revenge in my mind. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely think that Tarantino has more of the comedic flair to his movies um, mm. that I don't see in any other ones. So he, I don't know, I would, I would put him in second place. He's like the grandson of revenge movies. <laughs> I want to love you, P-Y-W. Oh man, you know how many times I thought about like what I could work in as a bad joke about PYT? <laughs> well, there we go. Uh, <laughs> um, that's right, we're talking about Promising Young Women. What are your two histories with this movie? It is not streaming anywhere right now. I'm sure it will be still while we're in quarantine, but um, Michaela, I'm very curious to hear about your experience. Uh, yeah, I remember seeing trailers for this movie when I was still able to sit in movie theaters, um, and I was very excited for it to come out. And then COVID hit, of course, um, so it was super delayed, but I just remember, like, watching that trailer and going like, oh, this looks really, really good. Um, so then I saw that it was playing at the drive-in, and I was like, I have to go see it. I can't wait. How was it at the drive-in? It was good. Um, the only issues were uh, other people mm-hmm. uh, turning on their headlights. Because mm-hmm. at the particular drive-in that we went to, they don't have any notices at like before the movie starts. Mm-hmm. They need to really incorporate that where they're like, hey, be friendly, keep your headlights off. But other than that, like it was great seeing it on a big screen. Um, I imagine seeing it at home wouldn't have the same impact. Definitely a good drive-in movie. I feel you on the drive-in stuff because, um, as you know, I program at the Frida Cinema in Santa Ana, Orange County's only art house uh, cinema, and we're doing a lot of drive-ins right now. We've done, uh, last night was 90 since June, so um, it's so hard to get a group of, like, anywhere from 40 cars to 150 cars, everybody to turn their lights off and stuff, and what we've been doing (laughs) is taking t-shirts from our merch stand and taping them onto the car over the lights and then on saturday when we played clueless there was one car out of the 80 cars there that could not quote unquote could not turn their lights off as if they were the only car that wasn't able to do that oh my god and so (laughs) we used um five t-shirts to cover up all the lights and it was like a vaudevillian sketch where it was like um, I would walk away, and then like a new light would show up on the car, and I, I, I was, I was very close to asking them, like, "Are you guys messing with me, putting more lights on?" But they, they seemed nice. They kind of seemed a little clueless. Oh my god! Yeah, there you go. No, the, I, I've been to the Frida drive-ins, and those ones, I'm not bothered. I haven't been bothered at all. Like, even if somebody has like a headlight on, I can see the screen really well. So like you've done a great job with that of having like a great screen resolution but yeah something about the place that we saw promising young women at like the the screen was way too dimly lit and then as soon as any car had headlights on and then cars were like moving through the parking lot too so it was a bit distracting but that was my only issue with it 
if the Frida had shown it now, I'm sure it would have just looked even more incredible. I wish they would focus features would have let us, but they didn't let us play it. Uh, Adam, have you ever been to the drive-in before? Yes, I have. I went to go see Knives Out. I actually brought my mom to go see it. Yeah. Oh, I, I just meant in general, not the Frida one. But have you ever been to like a quote-unquote, no offense to the Frida, and I just would be dissing myself really, but have you been to a real drive-in before? Yeah. Um, a long time ago when I was in college dating this girl, we went to go see Ender's Game. Sure, buddy. Let me just say, Ender wasn't the only one with game that night. Oh, jeez. I'm keeping score, and you're you're down. You're negative two to my zero right now. Um, um, my history with um, Promising Young Woman. Oh, God. I Because of your PYT joke, I almost called it Pretty Young Woman. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, God, what does that say, though? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. I don't, yeah, exactly. I, I don't um, judge her that way. <laughs> yeah i don't look at carrie mulligan and think i i don't think anything i don't think she's i you know I, I can't i don't you know my mind doesn't work that way um but every year uh sundance always has i know Cannes is a little different and I, adam i know you i know you know a little bit about Cannes film festival uh, as we have a dead podcast concept that we were going to do called palm d'orks which we're going to bring up on the show forever mm-hmm. about palm d'or winners that we um never we'll get around to recording maybe we'll get it maybe it'll be a genre on the wheel we'll do one day but uh there's always like three or four really controversial movies that debut at Cannes. but there's always like one that debuts at sundance and this was the quote-unquote controversial movie of 2020 you know like january of last year uh, so that it really caught fire there and we'll get into it later about the stories of how the test screenings for this movie went but having watched it um other than the the ending which i'm sure we'll dissect i was like really this was the controversial movie last year like how how soft were the people who were watching this movie yeah that's mm, i don't like knowing that information now (laughs) like i'm just like oh man come on how is this controversial yeah it is a bummer i think um i actually have a similar experience to you michaela i remember seeing posters for this the last few times that I got to go to the movie theaters last year. Um, I also watched this in probably the worst way possible. I watched it on my computer screen with like the lights on and uh, it wasn't even full screen. It was like just a normal, I don't know, one fourth of my screen. Uh, I hope that just, I, I couldn't get it to go full screen. Every time I clicked full screen, it would like get all wonky and crooked. So, but I it's hope on Emerald demand. Fennell doesn't, I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. Yeah. I'm sorry. Emerald, you know what? Uh, I can't um, wait to see your next movie in theaters. Maybe she'll take pity on you and like give you a a swag bag because she was like, oh, you didn't get to see the movie in full view. Mm-hmm. What what might be in this swag bag? Um, the movie on Blu-ray. Okay, nice. And a T-shirt that says something like, I don't know, I suck. <laughs> yeah that sounds about right Um, because i feel like she would she would put that in there she'd be like oh watch the movie but you also suck right that that seems classic emerald to me (laughs) yeah Uh, before we really get into it do you feel like you know emerald fennel after watching this movie really well because i i did not do a ton of research into her other than her career but i'm pretty sure she's like a british woman like fairly posh british woman am i wrong about that I think so. I have no idea. Yeah, I feel like what um, Killing Eve kind of influences what we think of her a lot, right? Because this has... uh, Do you guys watch Killing Eve? I don't, but I realized while researching her that I watched Call the Midwife, and Mm. she's on that, which is also a weird thing to associate her with, and then this movie, because it does not compute in my brain she plays like a nurse on that show yeah um well uh i have never watched killing eve but i know i know emerald fennel from uh my girlfriend watching the crown in the background and uh emerald fennel is very good in the see whatever season she was in of that huh. and then someone was like oh uh, promising woman is is I, I misheard them and thought it was from somebody who had directed some episodes of the crown and i was like oh that sounds great because the crown is really well directed then it wasn't until later that it was like no it was from somebody who was acting in the crown and i was like even more impressed so but adam let's get into it uh yeah let's get into it what we're going to be talking about today you are asking dear viewers listeners and this is what we're going to be talking about we're going to discuss emerald we're going to discuss some of the performances some of these standout sequences that we really liked or hated 
um, and what makes this special within the revenge genre. After that, we're going to rate it on our completely arbitrary and Byzantine scoring system. And then we're going to ask a few questions to Michaela, and then uh, we'll call it a day. So let's start. Let's, we're talking about Emerald now. Um, let me go back to Killing Eve. I've been watching, I, I saw the first season of Killing Eve and I really enjoyed it. And this has a lot of Killing Eve vibes. It has a lot of smart women, kind of hyper-realism, you know, very on-the-nose ideas. Um, and so that's what I'm kind of feeling from Emerald. I'm feeling like she knows exactly what she wants to do and that, yeah, she's probably British. Yeah, no, I mean, I, it's interesting that you say that she's probably British. I haven't seen Killing Eve, but watching this movie, I found it to be um, inherently very American. Um, and that, I guess that's my egocentrism, uh, thinking that everyone is American who's talented. But um, no, I, I really I really am looking up like she's, she's a 35-year-old British uh, author, actress, stuff like that. So I think that this is something interesting that we're probably not going to get to do a lot on this uh, podcast, having do, to do like repertory genre films is discuss a brand new movie a brand new debut movie from an exciting new filmmaker mm -hmm. promising young woman is about a young woman haunted by a tragedy in her past taking revenge on the predatory men unlucky enough to cross her path um we have some letterboxed reviews i hear Yes, we do. By the way, that logline is so succinct and so perfect. Like just to pitch the that idea uh, of a movie is like I'm like when I read that I'm like, oh yeah, I want to I want to see that movie. But uh, what we do here, Michaela, is we read Letterbox reviews. I usually start with reviews from my friends on Letterboxd. I'm at Captain Dills on Letterboxd, by the way, if you want to follow me. Okay. Um, first review is coming from Aya. Friend of the show, Aya Lehman, who is um, the star of Aya versus the Big Boys, one of my favorite new podcasts. Aya says, there is no force stronger than female rage. And then about 13 dots, she says, I am in awe. So Aya really liked it. And the second one here is from comedian Demi Adijuibe, who is my friend on Letterboxd. But, no, he's my friend on Letterboxd, but I'm not his friend. But he said... This shit got my heart pounding so fucking much for the entire second half. I genuinely had to get up and go for a walk in the cold when it ended. Good lord, with about 13 exclamation points. So a lot of periods from Aya there in her review and a lot of exclamation marks from Demi. This movie has people reacting at him. Yeah, and I'm, I'm in the Demi camp here. I was, uh, I was floored by the end, but what, what do we feel about it overall? Uh, Michaela, what are you thinking? Oh, overall, I thought it was phenomenal. And yeah, the second half of that movie, like, it it got me. There were twists there that, like, when I go into a movie, I like to think, like, all right, you got me. I, I see what's coming. But this one genuinely, like, I did not see what was coming. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I loved it for that. And then I also just loved it for the subject matter as well. Mm -hmm. Do you, so... It's great. It tackles something that I think is really necessary. But did you feel uncomfortable also watching it? Me personally, no. I was ecstatic <laughs> um, okay. because it's it's. I don't want to speak for every single person, but for a lot of women that I know, and for me personally, it's like a fantasy that I kind of wish I could live out. I found this movie heartbreaking completely from that perspective of just having known so many women who have watched it um, personally and also on my social media and stuff like that who are just finding it so relatable. And I was like, oh, that's so sad and terrible that you're finding this relatable. But it struck a nerve with them. It's extremely unapologetic filmmaking. Like, and there's not a ton of subtlety to it. It it really reminded me, Adam. We haven't gotten to this genre yet because this is our first genre, obviously. But it reminded me of a grindhouse movie almost in its lack of subtlety, but like the powerfulness of the filmmaking. Um, it was like I, I was calling it on Letterbox new grindhouse and new grindhouse because. Um, except, of course, elevated almost with like the amazing performances and stuff like it. I really love, especially for a debut film to be this strong and to the point. Uh, I was really, really impressed by it. And it's going to end up on my top 10 of the year for sure. I completely agree with you in terms of uh, grindhouse genre. It's very self-aware. And you can see that Emerald was just having a great time not only putting together these scenarios, but also... Um, Putting together the details, like the music, especially the covers of these powerful pop female vocalists from back in the day. 
uh, including Paris Hilton, who I hadn't heard that song in a really long time, and I love. So this is why I thought the movie was like uh, directed by an American, because of course, like, I'm, I mean, America, one of our greatest exports is Paris Hilton, but I didn't realize that that song could really have an effect on like a 15 year old British girl enough to, for her to be like, I'm gonna write a movie one day, and Bo Burnham's gonna be singing this movie to Carrie Mulligan <laughs> in, in like a liquor store, or like a pharmacy. Like, what a, what an odd uh, scene that was, but I really really enjoyed it. Right, and I think um, I loved that cover of Toxic, that like violin heavy before yes. the, uh, the all the stuff goes down. That was great. And That's that was what I in remember. The trailer oh, too. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that, sorry, that sorry. That kind take... of got me in the trailer. I was just like, okay, I need to see this movie. Hmm. Yeah, Toxic is like one of the best pop songs ever. So to take that and then like do like a strings cover of it is so good, so so good. You guys sound pretty hot on this movie. Uh, I'm sad to say I, I'm not as hot. I'm, I'm kind of mixed on this movie overall. Oh, I'm definitely like I'm definitely morally mixed on this movie overall. Um, I think it has some really strong filmmaking. I think it has like this bright candy coated shell. Um, and once it as it keeps going, I like how Emerald keeps peeling that back as we go, and it keeps getting darker and darker and darker until until we get to that pitch black ending. Mm-hmm. Um, but I love a movie that makes you like really feel. It, it wasn't like anything else I had seen this year or really ever. Why did you feel uh, like lukewarm on it? Um, well, I, like I said, you know, this really grabbed me at the end, specifically the moment when. We hear Bo Burnham's voice on that video. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the best twist in the movie. I love that twist because suddenly it all makes sense. The relationship between those two did not work for me. The romance. Yeah. You know, it was very on the nose as as were a lot of the situations that were happening prior to that twist. Um, and I understand that was intentional, you know, so that we can see like this is this is a stereotypical nice dude. You know, any actor could have any male white actor could have read these lines the same way you know Mm -hmm. and i think that's the point um but i just i I wasn't i'm not like into that kind of thing you know if that makes sense um i mean i i liked i liked well we'll get to performances in a little bit but i liked bo burnham in this and i bought them so i guess we kind of disagree there and when that review or that when that reveal happened that was that was a gut punch man i was like oh not him but it totally thematically goes completely with the movie Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Like, as I was watching the the movie before that twist, I was like, oh, this is so cheesy. But, like, I had one ounce of hope for her. And I was like, well, at least she has this nice guy. And, of course, that's the whole thing is, like, you're falling for the fact, like, oh, he's so nice. He's great. And then, again, I was gut punched, too, even. Even though I was like, I see this coming. There's got to be something the other shoe has got to drop in this like too cheesy romance situation Mm -hmm. um but still because i was so wanting something happy for cassie i was hurt by the reveal yeah it really it really reminds you what movie you're watching yeah they're like no 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 this is not some sort of rom-com where in the end she ends up getting her happy ending despite her you know dark past and what happened to her best friend like no this is real this is real life right i mean i'm there with you i I, that twist and from there on i'm in it and i'm fully with the movie but like like you know bringing up the scene again where they're dancing together in the convenience store i was like yeah uh, this could happen anywhere. This could happen in any movie. I, I wasn't like feeling the flow. I didn't find it especially unique or anything like that. Yeah, that's what I mean by it, it was like elevated grindhouse in the way that like you, like the second the character gets something good going for them, it has to be completely ripped away from her, and it has to further her plot of vengeance, which is what this entire series is about. That's why I find this to be a very good revenge movie. I'm really excited to see how it does on our scale. But we'll get there eventually. Right. And then, um, yeah, I think I have one more thing to attest to that is I think I want this movie to be really good because there are moments of brilliance within this movie. I think, um, but they're kind of contrasted with moments that I'm not hot on at all. And I'll give you an example here. The revenge that she goes through with the Dean, you know, by quote unquote kidnapping her daughter, but, you know, making it seem like she dropped the Dean's daughter off at -hmm. that one room. Um, I loved that. That was brilliant. That was tense. It was getting dark. 
I was fully in that moment. And of course, she didn't actually end up doing anything that bad. So it all worked out, right? I'm sure you guys are fond of that scene. Yeah. That was my favorite scene in the movie, for sure. I think it ends with some sort of quote that's like, hmm, it's weird how you react when it's someone you love or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that was really powerful. I thought that that scene was great because there you got to see the contrast between how she treated and how she spoke of these previous students um she held al in such high regard and then she was like i don't remember nina who who is this person Mm -hmm. oh i don't know yeah and she's trying to still like justify kind of not knowing about this case by saying that oh we get cases like this all the time which is a terrible terrible excuse for that um but that scene works so well, I think, because it has such a vision to what Emerald's trying to say, you know, what what she wants to showcase about society. But then I think it's contrasted with a scene where she's um, the main character is parked in the car, you know, on the road. And we hear a dude yelling at her and the dude like pulls up beside her and then she gets upset and gets out and smashes the dude's car and then the car drives away. That that scene could have been in any other movie. It just felt like pretty quickly thought out you know oh what if a guy pulls up and yells at her and then he she smashes his car yeah adam i actually agree with you with everything you're saying i just don't know how we came on different sides to like the movie at this point (laughs) um i i love the scene you were talking about loving this scene felt um almost surrealist i guess what michaela was saying earlier but it was are, are we supposed to believe that actually happened is that something that we i mean i'm not really sure what that served in the plot function other than her finally blowing off some steam on just some dude who who deserved it you know Mm -hmm. yeah i kind of saw it in that way too where i was like i mean a a lot of the film for me was like i mentioned earlier a bit of fantasy you know it's like i haven't i i i've definitely had those thoughts before where i'm like man i just wish i could get out of my car and like smash somebody's window for being a jerk Mm -hmm. but especially that guy like he was over the top um so I just saw it as part of the movie as being another one of those fantasy moments for the audience where it's like, yeah, we get to live vicariously. It's cathartic. Um, as far as adding to the actual plot, n- no, it wasn't really adding anything, but I, I enjoyed it. Okay. Yeah. Um, I want to ask a question because you said that that dude was over the top. That did. I have just a general question I was thinking while I was watching it, and I think I know the answer, but I don't have the proper context or anything. Did y'all think that the performances, especially from the men, were over the top and overwritten uh, on purpose, or were they not? Were they subtle to y'all? What did you think? I didn't think that they were necessarily over the top. Oh, that's heartbreaking to hear. I've met those people, um, unfortunately. Not to bring the tone down, but yeah, I... I thought that it walked a fine line between realistic and possibly being a little, um, not satirical, but obviously for a movie, you know, for entertainment value and to kind of blow it a little up just so that the audience got a general idea of like, ooh, this is bad. (laughs) Um, Because if it was too subtle, I think the audience might not have gotten the point. Yeah, and I think it was a little, a little bit self-aware in terms of uh, these actors are all great, and um, they, they maybe were even the men in acting in the scenes were like kind of thinking like, oh, this is a little over the top, so I'm gonna do it over the top. You know, I would never say anything like this. It's like kind of how it read to me. Whereas Mulligan is like giving this like world-eating performance against like these extremely unsubtle performances. I'm like. Um, Adam Brody and Christopher Mintz-Ploss and Sam Richardson is great. Uh, I oh, love yeah. the scene. Yeah, he's he's really good in it. And where I think he like has that really funny line where he says like, "Why do women like ruin everything?" And he like runs away. <laughs> like I love I love stuff like that. It's like kind of the movie stepping outside of itself and just being like, um, kind of I mean over the top. You know, like I said, ele- elevated grindhouse almost. Yeah, I would. I was thinking. Um, I forget his name. Greenfield. What is his first name? Max. Max Greenfield. He, um, his performance, I thought was a little over the top, slightly. Um, but I think that's how he kind of is as an actor. Yeah, that's why you cast Max Greenfield is for a role like that. Yeah. Is that Nick Lovin? Yeah. Uh, no, that's a uh, Chris Mintz Plus, I think. 
Yeah, um, the, uh, Max Greenfield was one of the dudes at the bachelor party at the end, the one who came in after the reveal and oh, like sat with the dude fantastic. and was like, it's not your fault or whatever, you know, like it's, you were going to get through this together, yeah. buddy. It's not your fault. Right. One of my favorite moments is him opening the door for her and he just has that stupid smile on his face. He doesn't even say anything. Yeah. It's really good. Um, let me go back to this. Yeah, I think, you know, that that sort of like um, self-aware on the nose character and dialogue it didn't work exactly for me um i know it's not meant for me and i think the purpose that it is that it has in this movie is excellent um but i think because of carrie mulligan's character and i think because of sort of a just a a lack of confidence to the grindhouse genre that it seemed like it did want to get into um it, it felt a little bit all over the place and all, for example in the beginning we have an amazing title card sequence with the music and everything. And she's walking down the street and she's eating. Uh, what is she eating there? I don't remember. Is it ice cream or something? I don't. I think it was supposed to be like. It was ice cream. Yeah. Because yeah. it's like melting down her. No, no, no. She has a donut. It's like a jelly donut. Because I remember there's jelly going down her hand that kind of looks like blood. Oh, right, right. Yes. See, I thought that was blood. And I thought. Me that, too. Me too. I, I assumed that she had like killed that guy and she was like eating part of him or something. Yeah, I think we're actually supposed to think that. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it's it's a it's a very obvious. It's a she's made a clear choice. Emerald has yeah. said like it's gonna look like blood. No, I agree, but I think that that hurts the rest of the movie because then when she doesn't do anything to uh, to McLovin, who was like really creepy predator dude, um, and she continuously does not do very much. I'm like, wait a minute, was she, did she kill that guy in the beginning though? Like, what's going on here? Is she gonna be doing something? I thought that that was an interesting way of showing throughout the movie. She has these guys that seem to be like hitmen, but we don't actually see what they do. And I would have liked more exploration into that. That was really my only take from the movie where I was like, mm, that could have been better. Um, but I could also see like why we didn't explore that because it leaves so much for the imagination of like, well, is she a good person? Does she just threaten these people, or is she a murderer? Yeah, I thought that I thought that the complicatedness of the character is what made the movie um, interesting, if not an, an extremely good movie. That's decisive and all that. It. it Overall, it is a sloppy movie, Adam. I will I will say that it's a sloppy movie. It's a first time director, kind of putting every idea onto the page. Um, like you said, I'm really excited to see Emerald's next movie, mm-hmm. but I, I think it played really well here due to the the subject matter of the movie. It was kind of like I've lived this life. Um, you know, I have women who've told me all these stories. I'm gonna get them all out on the screen, and we're gonna just we're just gonna make this like kind of messy uh, revenge movie. It might not have all the violence of a regular revenge movie, but you know, does she kill them? Does she not kill them? Does she get them in trouble? Does she not get them in trouble and stuff like that? I don't know. I, I really liked the the back and forth of that. Yeah, yeah. I think you know, and to Emerald's credit, I think the messiness is all intentional and really well done. You know, I think the fact that we have Carrie Mulligan's character as a stoic, normal kind of normal person that we can relate to and the others seem over the top around the nose is that reflection is that idea of like well this is actually a realistic movie for some women yeah and i mean where we we it seems like we're almost playing the characters of like naive men who are like mm-hmm. guys are like this like no we know guys are like right, this yeah. but it's just like <laughs> every guy carrie mulligan meets is like this is no this is what the film has edited itself down to show you is her taking revenge on on the mega assholes mm-hmm. so um, did you all like the performances from Jennifer Coolidge and Clancy Brown as the mom and dad? Favorite part. Absolutely. They were great. Yeah. They they were heartbreaking. I have my favorite my favorite moment other than the one uh, Adam mentioned earlier with uh, the scene with Connie Britton in the office um, is when she puts on the, the pretty floral dress and she's walking out and then her dad is like, hey, hold on. And he's like, you look, you look really nice tonight. Like, I don't know why. That was like one of my very favorite parts of the movie. Yeah, he's a sweetheart. And it's nice to see that because I think I think she had to include kind of like a, a father figure, right? And that was always going to be an interesting point in this movie. And I like that it's a sweetheart. Yeah, it shows that she has a support network. I like that her parents seem to be supportive. They're just gentle. They're mm-hmm. like hey, if you want to get out of the house, you know, maybe make some friends. Um, they're they're concerned, and mm-hmm. rightfully so. 
But I really liked um, her parents a lot, especially it was heartbreaking when the dad, and I thought it was an interesting choice to have him be the one to say, you know, your friend was like a, a daughter to us and we're, we missed you too. Mm-hmm. That particular part, um, I think it was important for him to be the one to say that. Do you have any other favorite performances, Michaela? I did really like Bo Burnham's performance. I was surprised. Mm-hmm. Um, just how evil he could be mm-hmm. <laughs> at the end when the detective comes to his office after that whole cheesy romantic oh i'm dancing in the pharmacy and singing and everything's happy and (laughs) their little schmoopy lovey-dovey part where they're in bed and he's like i love you um i think that yeah i was surprised by his performance because i haven't really seen him in much outside of his comedic um like stand-up shows Mm -hmm. and i think it's go ahead sorry oh i was just gonna say i watched uh you know his his uh directorial debut and i thought that was great mm-hmm. um but yeah it was a it was a su- nice surprise yeah I, th- I thought that was fascinating casting especially coming off of like like is bo burnham gonna act anymore because he like barely acted before he was mostly a comedian then he made eighth grade and it was like oh he'll just be a director from now on it's like no i guess he'll be the second lead in one of the most talked about movies of the year <laughs> like like what yeah. what an odd choice he what a great career he has he's like 31 or 32 years old I think um, he, yeah he's really young i was surprised when i looked up how old he was because i was curious i was like what is, how old is he um he's done a lot yeah he he was kind of always like a comedy wonder kid growing up because he's like only a couple years older than i am and it was always like man this dude is so good and so sharp so when he became a director and made a really nice subtle nuanced movie i was not surprised at all but i then i didn't really like him in this movie at first like you mentioned but then when he became what he became i was like oh yeah no that is perfect casting like i get it now you know Mm -hmm. his line to her when she says that she's going to turn him in or whatever, or when he says, like, he finally loses it and says, like, oh, I guess neither of us will be doctors then, or, like, whatever. I was like, perfect, Mm -hmm. perfect, good, Mm Bo. Yeah, he was vicious. And, yeah, it was was perfect casting because he is what you think of as, like, oh, he's a good, nice guy. He's funny, and, oh, he's just kind of a dork. But, um, yeah, I thought that that was great. And then, of course, Carrie Mulligan. Oh, my God, Mm -hmm. she was phenomenal like that's that's really all i can say it's just like she i i think her performance of this character deserves some sort of nomination yeah i think you know it's because so much of this feels a little bit hyper realistic it's great to see how well she can handle a really complex grounded character in the midst of all that you know carrie mulgan's decade from well roughly decade from 2009 to now includes Drive, Inside Llewellyn Davis, Shame, Steve McQueen's Shame, which is great. This movie, uh, Paul Dano's directorial debut, Wildlife, which have you all, have you all seen that one? No. Yes, I love that one. I thought that was a good movie. And she's f- fantastic in that. Also yeah. playing a very, uh, how should I say, a difficult character to tackle. You know, like not the most, Wildlife especially, not the most sympathetic or likable character but she really translates well to screen with that character and she's been tackling very very tough roles and i love her and never let me go as well i think that i think that counts in the decade 2010 yeah so yeah yeah that i mean she i think has gone underrated for far too long because like you said wildlife that was a great performance totally overlooked um and yeah, Never Let Me Go. I remember seeing that movie and crying. <laughs> um, and it was a great, um, again, adaptation from the page because that book is heart-wrenching too. Um, so yeah, her performance in this movie, I really hope that she gets some sort of recognition for it because she's been unrecognized in all these films that we just mentioned. She absolutely should be. I I, I would be shocked if those nominees came out and we didn't get a Carrie Mulligan nomination for Best Actress. But you're right. Uh, my favorite performance of hers is in Shame. I think she's great in Drive. And there's like Albert Brooks is really great in that movie. But I, th- I still think Carrie Mulligan is the best performance in that movie. And uh, shout out to Laverne Cox, who uh, played a little bit of a cliche, you know, best friend at the coffee shop role, but brought a lot of personality to it, I think. Yeah, she was great. 
there this was a bone i had to pick with the movie for sure and you just you just said it as well like if i had to pick if i had one nitpick with this movie it would be like i really wish we could get laverne cox to play something that wasn't that role but you know what i'm not going to complain about laverne cox being in more stuff so uh, i'll accept it this time right at least she made it special yeah i was glad that she was in the movie but i kind of do wish she had more of a a role in the Mm -hmm. film Mm -hmm. you know something anything that would have you know been part of the end maybe i don't know could have helped the police or something (laughs) we i don't deserve this podcast or the right to talk about movies but night of the hunter is one of my favorite movies ian the other half of ghost party is um that's one of his favorite movies too and it was cool to see that on the tv and i'm sure there's massive thematic links to that movie and this movie that i'm not eloquent enough to put together that wouldn't that's not just a random movie that emerald had on the tv for them to be watching Mm -hmm. i'm so glad you brought that up too because that has been haunting me since i watched the movie where i've been trying to place connections with it i was like that is so intentional to show that movie in particular um and that scene I don't know if the reason why they incorporated, you know, him riding into town. I think that's when he rides into town. Um, Now I want to rewatch that movie. But then I could have sworn one of the songs from Night of the Hunter was featured in Promising Young Woman when she's devastated after finding out that Ryan was in that video. And she's, like, outside among the trees. I didn't oh. do any research into it. But there's, like, this song, and it's, like, haunting. Um, and I could have sworn that was in Night of the Hunter as well. Um, I also liked Alison Brie in this, uh, in a smaller role. This is the fourth movie I've seen her in in 2020. And she's, like, she works. She's, she's such an interesting actress. Like, uh, she kind of swings the pendulum to, like, whoa, she was too much in this movie. To She was so perfect, like, pitch perfect for this exact tone. Mm-hmm. I really liked yeah. how like she had too much wine and you could see it on her teeth and stuff like that. It was just such a <laughs> nice little role. So Children's Lullaby is from Night of the Hunter, Night of the Hunter during that specific scene when she's like outside among the trees. That scene that scene really stood out to me after she finds out that Ryan is, you know, not such a nice guy. Yeah. I just realized that we haven't gotten to the ending yet, and we're like we're quite a ways into this podcast. Um, I will preface it by saying that this had an audience test before its Sundance screening that um, almost came to blows between two character or two characters, two people in the audience, two characters, real characters in the audience. Um, and um, it was after the reveal at the end, um, which Adam, go ahead and peel the bandaid off and just say what it is. That she's dead. <laughs> yeah, that she is, does not see through her vengeance. Well, well, we'll get to that, I guess. But that we are led to believe that she doesn't see through on her vengeance, and she gets um, like just like suffocated to death with a pillow. It's horrifying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's I, it's also you know unfortunately probably the best way you could have done it, right? I think because it's more realistic. I think it fits with that theme of like men are just going to keep helping each other and keep getting away with things. Right, and it, and it really, again, it reminded you just like what we were talking about earlier. It reminded you what movie you were watching. Mm-hmm. You know, like we we were like, oh, she's really gonna go like Joker mode and get get her full revenge. And you're like, oh, we're like punched in the gut again for the second time in this movie, or at least the second time in this movie. And I was like, oh, what an, an extremely strong choice. Right, this isn't Django and Chain. Yeah, this isn't from the what was what did you say, Michaela? The grandson of revenge. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the grandson of revenge, Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> yeah, so Park Chan-wook is the king of revenge for some reason. Uh, Tarantino, not the prince, the grandson. Right. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was thinking, you know, like grandfather-grandson, but I forgot that it was a king situation. But it's still, he's still the grandson. <laughs> yeah, revenge yeah. is an area in this metaphor. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, we have this really, really, really uh, heartbreaking ending that then turns into what a lot of people... Because a lot of people are saying, like, boy, that ending, that ending. Do you think that they're talking about her being killed with the pillow? Or do you think they're talking about what happens afterwards? Because what happens afterwards um, was... I know I read something recently, uh, right before this podcast, that Emerald wanted the movie to end there. She wanted the movie to end with Carrie Mulligan being burned. And I would I think that that's... a crazy 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 decision that really would have 
stuck the stake in this movie for me to be like, this is like a game changer. Like this movie is like one of the, you know, boldest movies I've seen in years. Um, but what did you think of like the cutesy wrap up of it and her getting her revenge in the afterlife? I liked it. Um, I remember wa- sitting in the drive-in and watching her body like get burned and thinking that that was going to be the end. I was like, well, this is how they're going to wrap it up. Um, because that's more realistic, um, unfortunately. And I remember, like, I remember saying out loud, if this ends right now, I'm going to be so mad for weeks. And then, of course, it continued, and then we got to see the happy ending somewhat. Um, but I think if it had ended, like you were saying, with her just being burned and no resolution afterwards the not the whole wedding scene and how that played out with her little notes with her her mailing um the tape i think she mailed the tape to the lawyer guy um yeah alfred molina who i forgot to mention is awesome in this (laughs) yeah absolutely yeah um that whole scene too where she's just sitting on his couch um to go a little backwards um and he's just saying how sorry he was that was great. Um, but yeah, like the the final scene, I had no problems with it, but I also am like, okay, if it was cut out, I agree that it would have been a much more powerful movie. You know, to the credit of Emerald, I think I think she pulled it off. I think I think this is sort of a best of both worlds scenario because um, unfortunately Carrie is dead at the end, even with this ending. You know, the injustice still stands, I think. And we just get a little bit of uh, of revenge justice with that last scene. So I think mm-hmm. it still works for both things. Y'all are going to call me crazy, but my ending to this would have been going full Grindhouse, full mm-hmm. Supernatural, and having that wedding happen. And I, no joke, truly thought that her like zombified body was going to walk into that wedding mm-hmm. and just wreck like carry you know like the end yeah. of carry just like wreck it and i was like if that's how this ends i'm 200 percent on board like i've already gone this far with the movie i've seen the elevated stuff like go full grindhouse but yeah it was it was a cute way to a- a- end it and then uh Bo reading the text was like so satisfying mm-hmm. and then yeah i just it was like watching these people who these quote-unquote people who storm the capital get arrested mm-hmm. you know what yeah. i mean right now that just like, uh, what do they call it? What's the German phrase? Uh, uh, Shot sh- and yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, like, overdosing on that recently. And that's what we want from a revenge tale, right? I mean, that's that's what revenge is for, to get that catharsis at the end. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So, and, and it, you know, and we're about to find out very soon how this movie will go, do on our uh, scale, but mm-hmm. that's a really good point. Like, this movie ends the way we want a revenge movie to end. Mm-hmm. Well, this movie's in theaters right now, and uh, it will be on demand, I believe, by the time this podcast goes up. Correct. Um, so it's hard to see how it's doing in the box office, but what do you guys think the legacy of this movie is? I would like to hope that it it lives on, you know, it becomes not only a cult classic, but just a classic film. I hope that we see more movies like it without sort of drowning out this movie in particular. I have high hopes for it. I mean, I've heard a lot of buzz around it um, in a positive way. So I think it's going to be long lasting. It's going to be something that we talk about years from now. I think I'm hoping that it'll turn out to be like, oh, you got to check out Emerald's first movie. Like she made this crazy movie in 20, you know what I mean? When when she's like five movies into her filmography and we're kind of passing around Promising Young Woman as like this, like you mentioned, culty, uh, cult classic type thing that if you were to do an emerald uh fennel rep, uh what's what do we do at the theater what's it called uh retrospective um on her films you would be like and then on friday night for the cult movie we're gonna play her first movie it's called promising one movie you know what i mean like i, I i'm hoping that's the legacy of it and i'm hoping it inspires a lot of um new directors to hop in there um and tell their story and don't like you know subtlety be damned notes be damned just every idea i have in my head's going into my first movie because i might not ever get to make a second movie yeah i know i've been more nitpicky on it but i i did enjoy watching it and um it did get me uh i would love to see more 
like this. I'd like to see more from her. And, you know, the whole thing just felt like the most soothing antacid tablet after having to digest Joker. So if this could somehow replace Joker in every single instance of everything, yes. then I'm happy with that. Please. Absolutely. I, I want to live in that world. <laughs> you guys ready to rate this thing? Yeah. yeah. Woo. Michaela, I gave you a little taste, but uh, here on the podcast, Trevor and I have created a very arbitrary and Byzantine scoring system to rate these bad boys. Let me start you off with category one. How effed over is the good guy, good girl, at the beginning of this story? Oh. And, and this is going to be one to ten, right? Yeah. And do we get to emphasize on our number, or am I just giving you a number? Yeah, you can talk about <laughs> it. Okay. Um, I would say nine. Ooh. Um, I think Cassie, like, I mean, look at I mean, even her family, people that she knows, um, they all, from the outside, so I'm going to start from the outside and then the inside. From the outside, you know, she's 30 years old. I'm also 30 years old. Um, so very relatable. Um, she is working at a coffee shop, living with her parents. She gave up her med school. She lost her best friend. Um, she's hurting, like, majorly because of the actions of these other people and because she's seeking out justice and revenge on them. Um, you know, and she's resorted to, all right, I'm living this life where it's a double life. Um, at night, she's seeking revenge by... Um, you know, luring in these men and then uh, we don't know what she does after, if she's just teaching them a lesson and just speaking to them or if she's sending these hitmen in and like actually maiming them. Um, internally, she's definitely messed up. She's dealing with all of this stuff um, in her own way. So yeah, that's why it's super high. I would say a nine for sure. That is uh, that is exactly why we let the guests go first, just because I wasn't sure how to parse this category in terms of this specific movie. But absolutely, like the events of what happened in this movie have really set her back and essentially ruined her life. And that sounds like a 10, but for some reason I'm going eight. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I'm in the same boat. I think, oh God, there's a lot of strengths to this movie, and one of them being um, to show how affecting this situation can be to not just the person who is, uh, you know, directly in the situation, but all the people around them. Um, so I would say I would give Nina a 10. I'll give Cassie a 9. Category 2. Are the stakes justified? How in the right is she as she goes on her rampage of revenge? I would say it's complicated, but a 7. Mm-hmm. I think that she is justified. Like we just said, I mean, Nina, you just said she's a 10. She's dead, you know? Um, so I think that Cassie's a really good best friend for doing this. But the thing is, like, it's not just because it affected her best friend. It affects every single woman. Um, so I think she's justified to a degree. <laughs> Um, I don't know how extreme she gets with things. And we didn't really get to see at the end with Al even how extreme she was going to get. So it's hard to say. I'm going to follow your lead on this one and also give it a seven. Um, you even have this scene with Michael, uh, Michael Shannon, no, Molly Shannon, <laughs> um, where Molly Shannon is like, just stop. You know, this is, this is, you know, oh, oh, wait a minute. Wow. We're, we're going to get to that later. Uh, Adam, I, the light bulb just went off. I didn't realize that that trope was in this movie. Anyways, I'm sorry. I'm going to give it a seven. I'll follow your lead on this one. Um, yeah, hmm, this is hard. I, I, I feel for her. I did want to see more, but that's because I'm a, you know, I have a lot of bloodlust in me. <laughs> I'll give it a seven, too. Great. Lucky sevens across the board for that one. All right. Category three, Trevor. How good is the conversation before the storm? This is the trope where someone tries to talk the protagonist out of the revenge that they want. Um, can I uh, take this one first? Yeah. I did not realize that this was a trope that happened in this movie until moments ago when I said <laughs> I had a light bulb go off. Mm -hmm. 
Um, that was truly a classic conversation before the storm and an excellent use of that trope. I'm going to give it a 10. I actually had, <laughs> that was one of the scenes that I had a problem with. Um, I give it a three. <laughs> Whoa, here we go. <laughs> I yeah, was baby, like, yeah. I was like excited to see <laughs> Molly Shannon. I was like, oh, great. She's in this movie and oh, she plays Nina's mom, I'm assuming. Um, and it seemed so cheesy to me. That part in particular, like, yeah, she goes and sees her friend's mom, but then the way that Molly Shannon delivers, like, you need to stop. You need to focus on yourself. Like, that was weak, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get in the middle here. Uh, I agree with you, Michaela, on that conversation, and I am going to, but I will raise you um, kind of the conversation from her parents, which wasn't exactly like, please don't go with the revenge and do this, but, but that line uh that like it's nice to have you back too or however it was said mm, which yeah. i think is an influence on it and i'll give it a six um i want to just say that uh, i also had a problem with the scene in general but it was truly a really good example of this trope so yeah. i have to be objective <laughs> they literally brought molly shannon in for one scene yes. to do this trope that's why i'm giving it mm -hmm. a 10 i feel that i respect that all right, category four. How strong is the closure at the end of the story? Oof. Yeah, oof is right. Um, I would put it sort of towards the middle with a six. Mm -hmm. um, you know, she's dead. Mm -hmm. um, that's not cool. <laughs> Ideally, she would have survived, but, you know, something... We would have gotten the revenge that we wanted no matter what it seems either she would have done something to al we didn't really get to see exactly her whole plan carried out but because we do see a resolution i just give it a six we see them at least get arrested at a wedding yeah adam was saying that it was basically an extremely good feeling that we have while watching it i think the decision the closure that um you know emerald puts out there of her being killed i think that decision is bold enough to get a 10 but i'm with you i'm just going to give it a solid six um for the reasons that you just stated interesting yeah i think i mean i'm with michaela also it, it's interesting i think we probably would have have to have given it a zero if there wasn't that extra scene right with the wedding scene yeah yeah it would have been literally an anti-closure right yeah it wouldn't have really qualified as a revenge movie mm -hmm. i think if we hadn't had that end scene but then the other thing, too, the reason why I give it a six, I wish I could go lower, is because it's not solving a larger problem that they're trying to magnify. Mm -hmm. That's true. All right, you convinced me. I'll give it a five. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, you ruined the six, six, six. All right, six, five, six. All right. Um, all right. Now we're going to have some fun here. Category five. Wait, Adam. Yeah. We don't want to do that. We don't want we don't want to have fun. Right. Yeah, what, why are we doing this? Uh, uh, help. Right. <laughs> Category five here. Um, how cool slash clever are the weapons? Ooh, one. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> how, well, it depends on what we qual qualify as, as weapons. They can be metaphorical. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, then I would give it higher than that. As far as, like, actual weapons that we see in the movie there really aren't any there's just the scalpel mm -hmm. unless i'm forgetting something she used the hammer on the dude's car that's right or it's like a tire iron or something oh right right tire iron yeah see like that would have been cool if i saw more of that and yeah a little more violence but as far as metaphorically, oh god, then I would jump all the way up to a nine. The way she even talks to the dean, like using her words as weapons, mm -hmm. yeah, she's excellent at that. Yeah, I, I I thought that scene was dynamite. Of course, um, I'm just gonna play it safe and go with a six here. Not enough literal weapons for me. The movie skates by completely on Mulligan's um, psychological weapons, so I'm giving it a six. Yeah, I would give it a zero, um, but Michaela makes a great point, so I'll give it a six too. Hey, all right, all right. All right, and the bonus category, we're not having any fun. Where is the, how is the final showdown location? 
the location in particular, I think that if we're just focusing on the wedding, that is a 10. Mm -hmm. That is the (laughs) perfect location for a revenge scene to go down. Especially, yeah, like, the cops showing up at this, like, super bougie outdoor wedding. And then they're, on top of it, having this, like, these, like, drum circle sort of thing. Like, oh, God, it was perfect. Yeah, I'm going to go with an eight here. Uh, Extremely uh, satisfying to have it happen at that dude's wedding. So, eight. Yeah, I completely agree. And also, I think we can factor in the, uh, unfortunately, the actual... Um, sort of last fight that happens in the bedroom, you know, when this man's tied up but then gets out of it. Uh, it's unfortunate, but I think it hits the theme pretty heavy still. And I'll give it a nine. All right. So you giving it a nine brings the total scores to Michaela giving this film 44 out of, uh, because of the bonus rounds, if you take that out, that's technically you gave it a 44 out of 50 because the bonus points are so weighted, 1 through 10. But 44 from Michaela, uh, 42 from Adam, and a 45 from myself gives this movie a total score of 131, which nice. uh, we're not giving any context how that's doing against the other films in this series because you'll have to come back and listen to the Outro to Revenge series, uh, uh, Outro to Revenge episode, I should say see how it does overall but um i can just say out of context 131 is extremely strong yeah i certainly liked it more than uh, at least one other movie i've seen so far um yeah i was i was gonna say the one movie i think that we liked the most has uh scored the least on our arbitrary system here so that take that with what you will i think we should talk about you know really quickly how special this is as a revenge film to the genre because this is a very creative use of the idea of revenge, I think. I think it's highly important. We don't see... I can't think of, personally, really any movies that cover this the way that this does. Mm-hmm. I think that it should be held in high regard as far as, like, revenge movies go. Mm-hmm. It's certainly the only one I can think of that... Um, I, the, the the reveal, or at least I saw it as a reveal, of her it not being her the, that, that it happened to and her friend. Like, she's getting revenge mostly for her friend and also just all women in general. Um, I thought that was specifically very special, um, and it's definitely standing out in our in our series right now as being the only movie that's anything like this in terms of revenge. Right, and it's it's not point to point like a lot of revenge movies happen to be, you know, where one thing happens. She's constantly getting revenge, and that even trips her up at one point, um, you know, with Bo at the diner. Uh, I love it. I, I I love the use of this idea here. Yeah, at a certain point, the, the the genre has to expand, and this is an extremely clever and good expansion of the... I, I think I like this movie a lot more than I started this podcast saying I liked Same it. Same here. I think maybe it was Michaela who convinced me, but I am more into it now. <laughs> well, I'm glad. Yeah, I think that it's important. It's an important movie. It's an important subject matter. And I think the fact that it's portrayed in this revenge film style is all the more important Mm -hmm. and makes it digestible all right michaela so i want to ask you a very important question now yeah at the end of this saga trevor and i are going to be giving out awards to these movies if you had to come up with an award best whatever most creative whatever what might you (laughs) want to create best use of a metaphorical weapon oh nice interesting yeah because that that would sway towards this movie but also i'm curious what that would uh be applied to towards other movies Mm -hmm. oh we definitely have other movies that would apply to yeah great choice michaela thank you great choice and thank you for being on here do you have anything to plug um i just have my instagram uh to plug Mm -hmm. that's where i post most of my art um and that's at ghosts b the letter b and then the number four breakfast um so ghosts before breakfast i also am going to be doing a free to cinema podcast hopefully fingers crossed um but that will be posted on my instagram if i do that I also am going to be doing a a music movies TV podcast on my Patreon Um, that's going to be called Mix Mix, and that's patreon.com slash Michaela Davis, where you can find that. And uh, yeah, I love love following you on Instagram. I love your art and your comics with dogs in them. 
Yeah, thank you. That is my favorite subject <laughs> to draw. Trevor? I am on Lebertox at Captain Dills. There's a list on there that has all the Ghost Party Radio movies on it. My personal Instagram and Twitter are at Trevor Dills. And always follow us at Ghost Party Picks on all socials. And uh, follow me at Projector Fuel on Instagram to see movies that I'm watching. Um, do we have any listener reviews, Trevor? We have no listeners because these episodes have not come out. So nothing quite yet rats well you know when we do i hope they will email us at ghostpartypictures at gmail.com with their thoughts on the movies we're discussing or the categories that we've created here or you know your favorite movies from the genre uh michaela thank you for being on the show this was really fun uh like i said i came into this movie i came into this podcast liking this movie uh but i think i really really like it now it might go up even higher in my top 10 of the year that nobody cares about but uh i i will look back on it very fondly now Yes, that makes me so happy. Um, Yeah, this was a blast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michaela. Hope uh, we'll hear from you soon. And thank you to our listeners for tuning in to Ghost Party Radio. Promise the young woman. Bye. (laughs) Bye. (laughs) Mm, That's a 10.